0: I suspect that Sabbath day started off like any other Sabbath day. You get to sleep in a bit and then you have breakfast. You don't have to wash up because that's the perks of Sabbath day. And then they went down to the synagogue in Nazareth. And the usual people were there, the families. Most of them gathered every Sabbath in the synagogue. And one of the families was Jesus, the son of Joseph, the the carpenter, who was probably dead at this stage, but Jesus and his mum and his siblings were there. And somehow Jesus was the run on roster that day to read the scriptures and, and explain them, to preach. They gave him the scroll of Isaiah, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It was a passage everyone knew. It was a passage that they loved because it predicted the time when God would do something when something very special and significant would happen. They were looking forward to Jesus explaining some of what that might be when it finally came. And Jesus sat down, which is what you did to preach in those days. That's why every eye was on him. But his sermon was radical. It was very short for a start. But it's radical because he didn't explain what was going to come in the future. He said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, it's happening. Isaiah 61 that he quotes is about a gospeler, someone who brings a message, proclaims a gospel. Instead of Jesus saying, I wonder who it's going to be, he said, it's me, and I'm here today in your synagogue. That raises all sorts of questions. I hope it does for you like it does for me. One question clearly is, what on earth is a gospel? He says he's a gospeler, literally. A proclaimer of good news is how the NIV translate it, but literally he says he's anointed me to gospel the poor, to evangelise the poor. What is a gospel? We tend to think it's one of those first four books in the New Testament or maybe for some, some of us we've heard gospel means good news. And it's sort of right, but it's not quite right. Gospel in the ancient world was not a religious word. It wasn't something you connected with with, uh, the synagogue or with your religious beliefs. It was a, a word from the media. And it simply meant news, real news, huge news, news of big events. Now, for us, that sort of doesn't make sense because we're saturated with news, aren't we? There are news channels that has news 24 hours a day. You can turn the radio on anytime and you get news on the hour every hour. You look up the internet and the newspapers are all there. You can get news. Facebook has lots of news in it. And you know what? Almost none of it is news, is it? I mean, what happened yesterday? What really changed in the world? You watch the news every every evening. Channel 7 or Channel 9 or Channel 2 will give you 30 minutes of news. Well, the stuff they don't fill up with ads because there is no news. You get to the end of it, can you remember any of it? The only thing that makes any difference is the sport. And that's just news about games. But occasionally, there is news. Something happens in the world that grabs everybody's attention. Now, in the ancient world, news was not so easily come by. There was no internet, there were no newspapers, there was no radio or television. News had to be brought to you by a courier. And couriers would run from village to village, town to town, when there was news. You know, that might have been once a year, maybe once every 10 years, a courier would come, a a gospel would come. One of the most famous in the ancient world was Pheidippides. His photo might come up in a minute, well, a painting of him. Pheidippides was really famous. He's the marathon man. He was from Athens, and Athens was under pressure from the Persians in the 300s BC. And so Athens was a city-state, had to sort of stand on its own. They sent Pheidippides to run to Sparta, 240 kilometres away, and asked the Spartans to send their army to help them. So Pheidippides ran 240 kilometres to Sparta, ran back again, with the news that Sparta wouldn't help. Sorry, guys, you're on your own. So the army of Athens went out to meet the Persians at a place called Marathon, 42 kilometres out from Athens. Across, you couldn't see them. They're over the horizon. If you were back in town, you didn't know what had happened. And the battle went on, and, and smoke rose. They could see the smoke rising. And then one lone man, Pheidippides, runs from the battlefield back to Athens. He's carrying the news of the battle. Now, you can imagine you'd be on the edge of your seat, wouldn't you, as he runs towards you. What is his news going to be? Because if we lose, that means we're slaves. We're in absolute poverty. Anything we own, any freedom we have is gone forever. If we win, we we keep everything. What will the news be? And he got to the gates of Athens and he said, rejoice, we won and died. And that's why we run marathons, 42 kilometers from Marathon back to Athens, he was a reporter, actually, a gospeler. And those days, what mattered if you are a reporter was not how good you looked on television, but how fit you were, how fast you could run, how well you could take the news. The gospel is big news, news that changes the world. It's never trivial news. It may be good or bad news, but it's never trivial. Or to be more accurate, Gospel is news of a big event, the rise and fall of kingdoms and kings, natural disasters and plagues that affect everybody's life. We don't get news like that very often. Occasionally we do. Some of you may remember just uh, 9-11. That was newsworthy. I remember I I turned the television on and I saw the first tower with smoke coming out of it and reporters saying, we're not quite sure what's happened. We think a plane might have flown into it. Uh, but maybe it was an accident, we we don't know. And then while they were saying that, the second plane on live television flew into the second tower and suddenly, in a sense, my world fell apart. Because that meant it it was a terrorist attack. It wasn't an accident. If the second one went in as well, that's what it must be and the world had changed in that instant. And news flashed around the world. People were glued to their television screens, wondering what was happening. Who would claim responsibility? What does it mean for us? That was gospel. That sort of news is what gospel is. And Jesus says, I'm a gospeler. There is a big event happening. But what's he gospeling about? Well, if you're in Luke chapter 4, go to verse 43. Jesus says to those who come questioning what he's doing, I must proclaim the good news. I must gospel the, uh, the news of the kingdom of God to the other towns because that is why I was sent. I was sent as a gospeler of the kingdom of God to announce to the world the kingdom of God. Chapter 10, you might look it up yourself. When Jesus sends out his 72 disciples to go from village to village, he tells them to tell people that the, the kingdom of God is near. What they were to proclaim was exactly the same as Jesus. It was about the kingdom. Which raises the question then, what is the kingdom of God? Is that what the gospel is? What is the kingdom? What is this kingdom of God? And that really is the central question of this week. We're going to explore what the the gospel of Luke says about the kingdom of God to see its significance and its implications for us. The first thing to say about the kingdom of God is it must be something new and big. It can't be something that's always been. The sky's blue. Yeah, that's not news, is it? It was blue yesterday. Who cares? If he's giving a gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom itself must be something new. That is, it isn't simply, for example, the ongoing sovereign rule of God in his creation. In Psalm 103, Uh, uh, God is described like this the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all Now what's that telling us? it tells us God is king that's part of being creator you rule over what you create and he's always been creator and he's always been ruler he rules his world as the sovereign but that can't be what the kingdom of God is it must be something new something different to that more than that if it's something that Jesus came proclaiming, that it's near, it's breaking in. I think you can get a a feel for what Jesus' announcement might have meant from a passage like Daniel chapter 2. All of these come from the Old Testament, which you'll see why soon, I hope. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of the Babylonian Empire, has a dream that really, he thinks it's a nightmare, it troubles him. Uh, He doesn't understand it. Finally, Daniel is able, with God's help, to interpret the dream for him. But the dream is of this large statue, this huge, stable statue set up out in the middle of the desert, gold at the top and silver and bronze and iron uh, and mud. And he's told that it represents human kingdoms, four of them. But while he's watching, this statue that looks so supreme is destroyed by a stone this rock just comes out of nowhere it's a rock not made by hands it comes from god and it crushes the statue and replaces it fills the earth and the the, the, the interpretation is that that is the kingdom of god one day god will set up his own kingdom that will be like human kingdoms because it, 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 it's a kingdom like that like an empire but it's unlike them because it's god doing it's not human doing it's a different sort of kingdom It's a permanent kingdom as well. Or in Isaiah chapter 52, the prophet Isaiah tells us about a situation that will come in the future. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. He imagines this this gospeler, this runner coming whose feet are beautiful because he brings good news. Now, let me tell you, a gospel in those days did not have beautiful feet. Imagine it. They've run over uh, across country, rocks and stones and, and mud and, and all that sort of stuff. And in those days, the streets in the villages were the sewers as well. Imagine what their feet were like. No shoes, always bare feet. They were cut and bruised. They were dusty and dirty. They were smelly. But i tell you what. If they brought gospel, they brought this gospel, even their feet were beautiful. Now, uh, I take a bet. For most of us, I reckon, your feet are the ugliest part of your anatomy. Is that right? Most people have ugly feet. Toes are too long, they're knobbly, they're, their feet are never beautiful. But gospelers, their feet are beautiful because of their message. And the message this gospel will bring one day is your God reigns. Now, if we go on to the next few verses, we see what he means by that. Uh, Later on, he says, Burst into songs of joy, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He's rescued and reset Jerusalem to what it should be. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. It's a picture there of God rolling up his sleeves getting in, mucking in, doing something. And what he does is he saves with power. There's Israel, captives oppressed. God will step in one day and rescue them. He'll bear his, his holy arm. He'll take up arms against their oppressors and set them free. And when that happens, the gospel will be uh, explained as your God reigns. Your God has shone that he is the God. Your God has shown he's powerful. But it's not just showing it, he's done something. He's rescued, he's changed the whole situation of his people. So they're now liberated. Their oppressors are now crushed. Now you know that your God reigns. He has saved you. Now these pictures give us a glimpse of what the Old Testament looks forward to that Jesus describes of the kingdom of God. But it's worth spending a little bit more time just seeing more of that, see some of the broad contours of this hope that God gave to not just his people Israel, but to the whole world. This was a hope generated by God himself and the promises that he made. Uh, it's it kick-started in Genesis chapter 12. The background to that, if you know the story, is Genesis 1 to 3. God creates the world and humanity. Everything's terrific till Adam and Eve, as the first humans, rebel against God. They say to God, just, just back off, God. We want to do our own thing. We want to decide for ourselves how to live. And in their rebellion, everything goes wrong. We have the flood, the Tower of Babel, the world and humans are under the curse of God. But in Genesis 12, God kickstarts something to put that right. The Lord said to Abram, Abram's just a A nobody, a a random person from Ur in the Chaldees, in modern-day Iraq. He says to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I'll show you. And I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Did you hear the word that keeps coming up in that? Bless, 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 bless. God's determination to bless a world, to bless a humanity that has turned against him and brought curse upon themselves. This is God's counter move, God's response to human evil and the mess it created. And there's blessing for Abraham as he becomes known personally but there's a long-term plan here revealed of giving to Abraham the blessing of offspring. He'll become a great nation. Land, they'll have a land to dwell in that's flowing with milk and honey and a relationship with God. He is their God. They'll be his people. He'll look after them. They'll enjoy the blessings of living under God's rule. But it doesn't finish with Abraham and his nation. It goes beyond that. All the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. Which was on the next slide. It goes out to everybody in the end. Every family, every nation, every tongue. And notice this promise from God is unconditional. He doesn't say... Abraham, if, if you do it right, if you brush your hair the right way and stick by me, it's going to happen. No, what God says is, I will do it. It must happen. And it kickstarts a story that goes from Abraham to his one child. They have great trouble having tr- uh, children, uh, Abraham and Sarah, but they have Isaac eventually. Isaac only has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau, it turns out, not to be the one God has chosen, only Jacob. Jacob, though, has 12 sons, and things start to take off from there. They end up as slaves in Egypt, multiply like rabbits. They become a bit of a nation. And then we have what you might call a preview of what God will finally do, a preview of the kingdom. As God rescues Israel in the, in the Exodus, he intervenes in a dramatic way against Pharaoh and the Egyptians to rescue his people incredibly, uh, dramatically, by crushing the oppressors, uh, crushing Egypt. Forging them into a nation that belonged to him, bringing them to himself, giving them a land, a land that they conquer under Joshua, and they gradually become a nation like he promised. And he gives them kings, the second one of which is David, a great king, finally ruling over a great nation. But even while David is king, God intensifies and extends these promises that he's made, this hope that he's creating. So he says in 2 Samuel, these promises to King David. Uh, he says that I'll provide a place for my people Israel under you as their king. will plant them so they can have a home of their own. And David, I will give you rest from all your enemies. And those two things go together. David will have rest from all his enemies. That is, all the other nations and kings that try and conquer him and, and pressure him and take over, even from inside, those who do it, God will give him rest from those enemies. He will be victorious over them. But when he's victorious, that means the people under his rule enjoy the blessing of his rule. They enjoy peace and prosperity, a place of stability uh, and security. See, whoever rules over you makes a huge difference to your life, don't they? I'm very glad that we have elections every three or four years here. We can elect those to rule over us. Um, But democracy is built on the belief that you cannot trust anybody to rule over you. That's the whole reason for democracy, isn't it? We won't won't let anybody have much power at all, and whatever power they do have, they can only have for three years maximum before we we vote for them again, because we'd like to vote them out if we don't like their haircut, whatever it might be. We don't want anyone to have enough power to actually change anything. Then we complain when they can't change anything. That's, That's part of the system, isn't it? Whoever you have leading you does make a huge difference to life. God promises to Israel that David as king would so rule, so have victory over his enemies that they will live in security and prosperity. But God goes further with David in particular. He promises to David that your offspring will succeed you, someone from your own body. And for your offspring, your successor, I will be his father and he will be my son. There'll be a relationship, no longer God and his people, but now father and son, family together. And finally, in the last bit, he says, your throne will be established forever. Strange thing to say, isn't it? How can a throne be established forever? Who can see that far ahead? Is it just hyperbole and exaggeration? But God is promising to secure a permanent blessing through his king for his people. If you know the story, Solomon, David's son, was like a son to God in many ways and he built the temple for God in Jerusalem, but it all fell apart during his life and afterwards. So that 400 years later, Israel find themselves in exile, in slavery, away from Jerusalem, out of the land, no longer a nation, just exiles. But God says, I haven't abandoned my plans to bless you. And he keeps speaking to those exiles through Isaiah and Jeremiah and others because my plan, says God, must still happen. So there's a few passages I just want to use to to see the sort of vision that God casts for his people. One of them is Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, that is, the King, the Messiah, you are my son, today I've become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. You know, Australia and the US and Canada and And Indonesia, the nations of the earth, Uh, the ends of the earth your possession, you'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. If nations reject his rule, if they revolt against it, the Messiah will smash them. You know, like you get a glass. You've ever done this? And just for fun, you, you, you throw it on the floor and it just smashes everywhere. That's what the Messiah will do to every nation. Even Russia even the US, if they don't submit to him, if they don't come under his rule, if they plot against God's Messiah. Of course, one day, all the kingdoms of humans will become the kingdom of God's son. You see, God has always been ruling his world. He's never abdicated. He's never gone on holidays and said, I just can't do it, it's too hard for me. He's always ruled. But in this world, many refuse his rule. Many rebel and ignore him. Many oppose him with impunity and the results, frankly, are appalling. And God says, one day through my Messiah, I will rule again. I will smash the opposition. I will bring something that is good. Now, can you still hear me? It's okay. I'll try and shout a bit louder. See how we go. Uh, Second passage is Isaiah 61. We we saw Jesus quote that in Luke chapter 4. Jesus reads it in the synagogue. And here he pictures God rolling up his sleeves uh, so that there is good news to preach. The oppressed now can lift their heads. Those in exile can say, now our freedom comes. One day, says God, I will act so decisively that the news will travel the earth. But it's not just about exiles being freed. In Isaiah 25, it's pictured in a different sort of way. Picks up something else about our situation and the oppression that we're under. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of great food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. So it's sort of like one of those degustation menus. You, you heard those things? that Sometimes restaurants put them on. You get about 10 courses with wines to go with every course. I presume it's made to... If there's so much food, you're supposed to feel sick at the end of it because you've eaten too much. Well, that's the sort of feast that God will put on for his people. Um, The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. What do you think that is? What is the shroud that every person will wear one day? It's the shroud of death, isn't it? A sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? He will destroy death, swallow it up forever. A world without death is unimaginable. Unimaginably good, but hard to get your head around. That is what the kingdom will include. Action at at that scope, that big that wide, that goes beyond politics, that goes beyond rearranging the deck chairs of our nations and political systems. That is big. But the picture the Old Testament paints has a bit of a twist to it. Like in Isaiah, God tells us that he's going to accomplish this salvation through a servant. So Isaiah 42, what's called the first of the servant songs. Here is my servant, says God, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. He'll bring justice to the nations. He won't cry out or or shout or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he won't break. He he wouldn't hurt a fly. This seems strange because he'll bring justice to the nations. How do you think that will happen? How would you bring justice to IS at the moment? Well, the only way we've got is force, isn't it? Bombs and, and guns and troops. That's the only way to do it. But God will do it somehow through a servant who wouldn't hurt a bruised reed. Taking that further in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, we see that this servant will die. Sorry, I missed one. The servant will be a light for the Gentiles. That is what he does will go beyond just Israel, God's people. He'll become a light to the Gentiles. And he'll do it through dying, despised and rejected by mankind pierced for our transgressions. Sorry, we need two slides on. Next slide. Uh, The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Next slide. He was cut off from the land of the living. He he was made a grave with the wicked because his death was an offering for sin. Yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. This servant will give his life to take the punishment for our evil. But somehow after that, he will have life again after death to see the effects of his death. Now, that's just been a a, a quick picture we've painted. But all these build up a hope for the people of Israel, for the people of God. They created an expectation of what God would do one day. And Jesus uses this phrase, the kingdom of God, to capture all those hopes and expectations created by God's promises and fueled by God's actions. The kingdom of God is Jesus' shorthand, as it was for other people in this time, a description of this climax when God's project will actually come to fruition. God had been building up the hopes for 2,000 years. And Jesus says, now the kingdom of God. And from those Old Testament passages, I think you can see the sort of things that the kingdom of God is. Here's my description of it. The kingdom of God is the permanent new state of affairs brought about by God's decisive intervention in human history through his servant Messiah, who defeats God's enemies and the enemies of his people and brings the blessings of his victory and rule to all his people from all nations. Now, firstly... That's a fair bit to get in your head in one go, isn't it? <laughs> go back over it. We'll, go, we'll do that in a second. But secondly, I hope you see that this is actually what the Old Testament prophesied. This is what God promised would happen one day. A permanent new state of affairs. Not the endless cycles like Israel's history went through, where they kept rebelling against God and God would have to rescue them and pull them back and then they'd go bad again. Or as you see in just our normal secular history, nations rise and fall. Uh, they get stronger, they fall away. It, it, it's this constant cycle in Eastern, Eastern philosophy. That's all life is, an endless cycle of reincarnation. This is a different view of history. One day, God will intervene to bring about a permanent new state of affairs that lasts forever. And it's brought about by God's decisive intervention in human history. He's not brought about by humans trying a little bit harder and making some progress some sort of evolutionary thing that happens increment by increment. No, it takes God's decisive intervention to bring about this new state of affairs. And God will do it through his servant Messiah, not blowing everything away in some violent conflagration, but by sending a person, his king, a king like no other, who will defeat the enemies of God. He's a game changer. Remember that David and Goliath story? You know the incident where David fights Goliath and his little victory, his win over Goliath is a win for the whole of Israel. They battle it out as the sort of champions. But what he wins is, is freedom for all of Israel. And so God, through his Messiah, will defeat our enemies and change the whole game so that we, we experience the blessings of his victory and rule, people from all nations, the liberty and prosperity, the the human flourishing that even death itself will no longer snuff out. The kingdom of God is not trivial, is it? That plan, that purpose, that's bigger than anything you've met in your life, isn't it? An intervention like that, a change like that, a permanent, total change like that. You could say, The kingdom of God is God's solution to the problem of the world. And most people admit there's a problem in the world. The world isn't what it should be. It isn't what we'd like it to be. There's sickness and earthquakes. There's injustice and exploitation. There's violence and sexual abuse. There's poverty and people living in hopelessness. There's divorce and family breakdown. There's there's just mess out there, isn't there? And I guess most people in the world who see it either say, We can do something about it ourselves, maybe education, maybe more technology. We can rise above this. Or, as I think most Australians do, we say, we can't solve it. We'll just try and keep it out. We'll go to university to protect ourselves from what happens in most of the world so we can live nice lives while it just goes on in the rest of the world. God says, you can't do it. You cannot solve the mess of the world. But I can, and I will. My kingdom is the solution to the rest of the world, to the mess of the world. Which says that without God, there is no hope. He's the only one who can do it. If you've read the first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel, you'll know that Luke's Gospel starts with people waiting for God to bring his kingdom, waiting for God to intervene, They've got every reason to believe that God will do it one day, except that it's been quite a few hundred years since he did anything much. Because they know what he did back in the Exodus. That was mind-blowing. They know that was real. They're the product of it. They know God has promised, and God is a God who keeps his promises. They're waiting and hoping for God to do something. And you meet them in Luke chapter 1 and 2. So, for example, we meet Simeon, who's waiting in the temple. And we're told in chapter 2, that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the comfort of Israel, waiting for God to intervene decisively, to bring comfort out of the, the, the uh, terrible situation that Israel was in, God's people were in. Or well, Mary is told, and just listen what the, the angel tells Mary, you'll conceive and give birth to a son, you are to call him Jesus, he'll be great and we will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Do you hear the echoes? Do you hear the the angel saying, the kingdom, that's what's coming. The Messiah, that's who he is to reign forever. They were waiting for the gospel announcement. The announcement that now, today, it's happening. And that's what Jesus did that morning, that Sabbath morning in the synagogue in his hometown uh, where he said, today this scripture is fulfilled. The kingdom is now. It's on the doorstep. It's breaking in. It's not just being offered as if God is sort of poking his head around the, the corner and saying, would you like to have a kingdom? I, I could do it now if you like, but if you don't, well, I'll, I can have a holiday for a while. Now Jesus is saying it's happening. It is being achieved. The intervention is happening. The kingdom of God is what Jesus says makes sense of him. And Jesus was an extraordinary person. I think anybody who reads any of the documents about Jesus, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, admit that in his time, everyone who knew him acknowledged him to be an extraordinary person but there's been lots of extraordinary people and extraordinary things happen in our world. For example, in 1490, I know you weren't there then, but uh, there was a huge asteroid, huge asteroid, that burnt through the atmosphere of the world and crashed into the earth near a a city called Xilin Yang in China. It killed over 10,000 people. Now, can you imagine if you lived in that region and you saw that happen, what would you make of it? you'd remember it for the rest of your life, wouldn't you? This huge flaming ball hurtling towards you out of the sky, sending such a cloud into the sky, causing such a an explosion that it kills 10,000 people. But you wouldn't know what to make of it, would you? What does that mean? Does that mean the gods are angry with us? Are they sending us a message? I wonder what the message is. Get a new haircut? What could it mean? Now, we might say today, well, it's just the way things happen. It doesn't mean anything, but... That's actually giving it a meaning, isn't it? It's an extraordinary event that just happens. It's got no meaning. Or uh, I'll give you another story that comes uh, actually out of um, Athens again. Um, In the 6th century BC, in the city of Athens, uh, it was devastated by a mysterious plague that nobody could do anything about. Uh, No one could work out what to do about it, how to stop it. People were dying left, right and centre. Uh, many of the people in the town, the town's leaders especially, assumed that one of the many gods that they, uh, they knew about had been offended. So they tried to work out which god might have been offended to cause such a plague, but they couldn't work out which one it was, so they didn't know how to appease it. Uh, part of the problem was they had hundreds of gods. So what do you do? You meeny miny moe, she loves me today, she doesn't love me tomorrow. H- how do you do it? Anyway, they decided to call in an outside consultant from the island of Cyprus, whose name was Epimenides. Now Epimenides came and he drew the conclusion that it was a god that Athens didn't know about. It was an unknown god that had caused this plague. And so he proposed a course of action, which, if it worked, uh, would, um, uh, would uh, remedy the situation and get rid of the plague. So he got them to collect a, uh, a flock of sheep and he said, what you've got to do is starve the sheep for three days till they're really, really hungry. And then at the end of the three days, take them up onto Mars Hill, which is covered with beautiful green grass, the sort of grass that sheep just love, even when they're not hungry. And if any of the sheep don't eat, where, where they lie down, you'll know that's where you are to set up an altar to the God who's caused this plague. And so they took the flock of sheep up there on the third day, starved to death, uh, you know, green grass, and three of the sheep didn't eat. They wandered around a bit and just lay down and had a sleep. And so Epimenides said, uh, go and build altars to an unknown God in those three places. They did that. They sacrificed the sheep that had lain down. It was fairly mangy, but they did anyway. And the plague stopped. Okay, Extraordinary things happen in the world. What do you make of that? How do you interpret it? How do you understand it? Seems a bit weird to me, but I'm not sure I'd build my life on that. Of course, weird things happen. I'm not quite sure how to explain. Is Jesus just like that? What do you make of him? He, three years in public ministry, executed? Just a a flash in the pan? Maybe you're a bit curious. Maybe it's just ambiguous, like the sheep. no. Jesus is quite different to that. Because Jesus came saying, I'm the fulfillment of 2,000 years of promises and plans. In me, the kingdom of God comes. There is a, a backstory that gets rid of all ambiguity. You cannot understand Jesus without the backstory. But once you understand the backstory, There's only one thing you can make of Jesus. His significance becomes crystal clear. You see, God, the creator of this universe, the person who made you and owns you, cooked up a plan. It's a plan that's bigger than anything you've thought of in your life, anything you've ever hoped for in your life. Now, did you hang out for a new iPhone? Well, this is a little bit bigger than that. Are you still waiting for the Dockers to win a premiership? Keep waiting. Is is there a girl or a guy that you just hoped, you've prayed that they will notice you? Were there uni results and and, uh, ATAR results that, that you just hung off? They would determine your life. Well, they're minuscule compared to God's plan, aren't they? They're really nothing. He planned the kingdom of God. He planned Jesus to come. That significant, decisive intervention into our world And in that sense, into our lives. Jesus and the kingdom go together like, I don't know, guitar and strings, like Castle and Beckett, like Tim and Rosemary. You can't separate Jesus and the kingdom. To understand Jesus, you need to understand the kingdom. To understand the kingdom, you've got to understand Jesus. And when you understand them, they're not ambiguous at all. They're crystal clear as to what they're about. This week is Exploring the Kingdom the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom Jesus proclaimed, his gospel. Have you ever found yourself longing that God would do something about our world? Have you ever found yourself praying, God, please fix this mess, whatever mess you've seen, whatever's struck your conscience, your heart, your compassion? I hope that's happened to you many times. The kingdom of God is the answer to your longing. God doing something. It's going to be exciting to explore it together. I'm really looking forward to our evenings as we do that. But also, as you read Luke's Gospel, read Uncover, more and more of this kingdom will become evident. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you love us enough. This world you created, this mess that's gone off the rails to have a plan that is so all-encompassing and so good. Please help us to understand it, to embrace it, to be part of it, and to proclaim it. And we pray that this week will be significant for each of us in being part of your kingdom. For Jesus' sake, amen.